WNYC Studios is supported by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, software for technical computing and model-based design. MathWorks, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. This week, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, that's a federal agency that manages water in the western U.S., started the process of cutting the amount of water allotted to users along the Colorado River after seven states missed the deadline for coming up with their own reduction plan. The area has been under a long-running drought, and with water in demand for everything from drinking to agriculture to electric power— And with the population of the area on the rise, states just can't seem to be able to hash out an agreement themselves. Joining me now to talk about the plan for distributing Western water and other stories from the week in science is Umair Irfan, staff writer at Vox. Welcome back. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me back. Okay, these water cuts. This is serious stuff, isn't it? With a strangling drought in the West, who gets the water? How much? Yeah, that's right. You know, there are seven states that are part of this Colorado River Compact. And initially, they were supposed to come up with a plan by this week to cut 2 million to 4 million acre feet of water. One acre foot of water is basically how much water it takes to flood one acre of land one foot deep. And they just did not do that. And so the federal government said, well, one, you still have to come up with that plan. And two, they started imposing their own set of cuts on top of that. And so the new set of cuts will affect Arizona, Nevada, and parts of Mexico. And they'll have to reduce their consumption by about 720,000 acre feet. You know, that's not anywhere close to the millions that are needed, but these are the cuts that are going to be imposed by the federal government. And that's because, you know, as you noted, there is a long running drought. There is first this uh, 20 year long drying period that we are in in the West. And also we're in a drought period from the last two years. And so sort of a drought within a drought is happening right now, which is pushing all these water resources to the brink. So how do they decide how much different users get allocated? Well, it goes back to history, and there's some strange rules with how the Colorado River's water is divided. You know, initially this has to do with seniority. Basically, the people who are there first have the longest standing and the first claims to it. But the water that's being allocated, there's more water being allocated than there actually is. And so this over-allocation problem is part of why there's been such a rapid drawdown. And so states and water users in the region have to basically go back to their baseline and decide how to use what 
the actual water is there. You know, they have to actually deal with what's physically there rather than what they're actually imagining would be there. Right. And uh, that's going to be a big political challenge. You know, there's a lot of very powerful interests here that don't want the status quo to change, while there are others that, you know, that are very drastically suffering. You know, people in Arizona and people in Mexico are getting just a trickle of the water from the Colorado River, and they desperately need that just to, you know, stay hydrated and to keep their farms and other kinds of livelihoods running. And so there's a big tension here that really needs to be resolved. And it's also the uh, the the problem of making electric power because the water level in Lake Mead that drives the power generators in Hoover Dam are at record lows along with levels in Lake Powell. So there's an energy crisis looming. Right. And it's not just the hydroelectric plants. You know, water is essential for making all kinds of energy products, you know, hydraulic fracturing to make oil and gas. Uh, it takes about one and a half barrels of water to make every refined gallon of gasoline or refined fuel. So it's also really important for cooling power plants. And we're seeing stresses on all of these things right now. When water temperatures get too high, power plants function less efficiently and they produce less electricity. And, you know, there's also limitations on how hot of water that they can discharge back into nature. And so in this period, we've seen this summer with extreme heat and extreme dryness, a lot of power resources have been stressed. Now, the West's so far hasn't seen any major blackouts. And that's because in the Pacific Northwest, they've actually had a fair amount of rainfall this past winter, and they're generating a lot more electricity to compensate for it. But, you know, water managers and resource managers in the West are concerned that, you know, in the next few years, if this drought persists, we could see a point where the major generators, like you noted, on the Hoover Dam and on uh, Lake Powell with the Glen Canyon Dam, they could reach a point where they're no longer able to generate electricity. And so some of them are, are, are turning to nuclear power, right? Right. You know, we've seen a step in of all sorts of different kinds of energy resources. We've seen uh, fossil fuel plants step in to uh, compensate for some of the downfall of, of hydroelectric power. We've seen a big cutoff in that. But recently, just this week, we saw an announcement from California that they want to bail out their last remaining nuclear power plant, the uh, Diablo Canyon plant. This plant provides about 9.3% of the state's electricity. And now there's a proposal to keep it running from its initial shutdown date of 2025 all the way out to potentially up to 2035. And this is not just here in the States. They're, over in Europe, they're thinking of extending the lives of their nuclear power plants. Right. Europe is also facing a major energy crisis. Like Similarly, for many of the uh, heat and drought reasons we've seen here in the United States, you know, water levels on the Rhine are really low. So Germany is having trouble getting its fuel shipments, its coal and gas in. And in France, nuclear power plants have had to actually shut down because water temperatures have gotten too hot for them to cool off. But Germany was initially planning to shut down all of its nuclear power plants by the end of this year. But after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they saw a big drop off in their natural gas resources. Germany is the largest purchaser of natural gas. And they're now concerned that they won't be able to meet their uh, domestic energy demand. Demand. And so the government is now proposing, rather than shutting down their nuclear plants, keeping them running. So about 13% of Germany's electricity used to come from nuclear. It's now down to 6%. But the government now says that it's really vital to keep that resource running. Was the California plant not economically feasible to keep running? Yeah, there were a number of factors. You know, nuclear is fairly expensive to keep running. And in California, you know, they have plenty of solar and wind, which can come on the grid very cheap. And then also a lot of natural gas, which is also very cheap. And this plant was also fairly old and it needed a number of upgrades in order to meet current regulatory and safety standards that were fairly expensive. But the uh, state says that, you know, uh, now that the uh, upsides of keeping nuclear running outweigh the downsides and the cost of this. There was a study that came out uh, just a couple of years ago that said, 
that California could reduce its power sector emissions by about 10% and save about $2.6 billion by keeping the plant running through 2035. So there is sort of a financial case over the long term for keeping this plant running. Yeah, but there's also the political case here. California is not known for being pro-nuclear. Right. You know, there's been a major environmental movement there, and um, a lot of anti-nuclear campaigners have been very successful in shutting down the state's other nuclear power plants. And so there is sort of a political tension, you know, particularly since, you know, California is governed by a democratic coalition and, you know, environmentalists and some anti-nuclear environmentalists are part of that. And so resolving that and making the case to them is going to be part of the uh, challenge for keeping nuclear running. Okay, let's move on to a different kind of energy a cosmic light show that's unusual. Tell us about that. Right. Uh, so a few days ago, scientists detected these eruptions on the sun called coronal mass ejections. And they send these waves of energized particles away from the sun and toward Earth. And when these particles hit the Earth, they can actually excite the gases in our atmosphere and cause them to light up, similar to how you know electricity excites neon gas and makes that light up. And this is the phenomenon that's behind the northern lights, you know, Aurora Borealis and also the southern lights near the South Pole. Typically, they stay near the poles, but because we saw such an intense wave of these energized particles hitting the Earth this week, starting on Wednesday, they are now can be visible much further south in parts of even the northern continental United States, in states like New York and in Oregon and in Iowa. And that a storm is expected to continue tonight as well. And so this is a sort of a very unusual event to see these uh, lights this far south. But um, it's one of the few ways that we can perceive space weather from the ground. I'm always just a little too far south to see these. Are they are they predictable at all? Yeah, actually, NOAA, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they have a space weather prediction center where they monitor these kinds of things and they can actually put out models to see where they expect auroras to form. Now, you know, these uh, magnetized particles, they... In addition to making auroras, if they get severe enough, they can damage electronics, communications, and satellites. And that is the main reason that they're monitoring it, because they want to be able to anticipate these kinds of problems. But the strength of the recent storm is not expected to reach those levels. And so we'll hopefully just get a nice light show out of it rather than any kind of you know disruptions. Yeah, hopefully. Let's turn to something else in the skies. And this is the possibility of resurrecting supersonic Air travel? I remember I remember those SSTs. Yeah. Uh, this week, American Airlines said that they're going to be buying 20 supersonic aircraft from this company called Boom Supersonic. Uh, supersonic aircraft are planes that travel faster than the speed of sound, about 768 miles per hour. And this follows an announcement from United Airlines uh, a while back that said that they would buy 15 airplanes from this company. So this is, seems to be a fairly um, large purchase order from airlines from this uh, company that really hasn't built any planes yet, but they expect to begin test flights in 2026 and start carrying passengers in 2029. Aside from trying to fly in a jet called Boom, <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know who came up with that name. I mean, the, the, the Concorde, as I say, used to be in service and it was taken out of service. What makes this time different? What has changed? That's a great question. You know, the Concorde, when it first came out, was, you know, hailed as the future of aviation, but it was quickly hit by an energy crisis. You know, there was a big spike in fuel prices around the world. People started being concerned about the environmental impacts. You know, in order to go faster, you need to burn more fuel. And it wasn't very big inside, so it wasn't a very large and comfortable aircraft. It was a fairly small and cramped uh, way to get around. And so uh, the cost got too high. The environmental benefits were very low. And so that's part of why the 
the Concorde was phased out. And many of those same concerns are still present now. You know, we're still facing a fuel crunch. We're still more concerned about uh, things like climate change. And, you know, aviation is a major contributor. About 5% of warming can be attributed to the aviation sector in any given year. And so decarbonizing aircraft is going to be a big challenge. Now, this company Boom Supersonic says that they want to be net zero carbon from day one. They have a suite of different tactics they want to use to do that, basically using renewable fuels and also perhaps a combination of offsets and other mechanisms. But this is really sort of an untested strategy, and it would be really interesting if they can actually pull off the environmental component as well as they pull off the uh, flying very fast component. Finally, heading into the weekend, we all know that thinking hard can leave you exhausted, but there's new research into why, right? Yeah, I read this piece by Claire Wilson and New Scientist that looks at this recent study about why people feel tired after doing difficult mental tasks. Now, the conventional wisdom was that your brain doesn't actually use that much more energy when it's thinking hard versus when it's slacking off. But they found that there might be an actual mechanism that explains this kind of fatigue. So researchers at the Paris Brain Institute in France, they uh, use this technique called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, which can track chemicals inside living tissue. And they asked 40 people to do do these memory tasks inside a scanner where they had to look at letters and numbers and colors and try to remember different aspects about them. And after six hours of these tests, they found that the people who did the harder task had elevated levels of this chemical called glutamate. Glutamate is an amino acid, but it also functions as a neurotransmitter. And the people who did the harder task had more of this glutamate and they reported being more tired. So this could potentially be a way to signal mental fatigue and a way that you can actually track this in people. Wow, very interesting. Always interesting stuff, Omer. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Have a good weekend, too. Omer Irfan, staff writer at Vox. We have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the big and small ways viruses have shaped our lives. Science Friday is supported by Zbiotics. The team of PhD scientists at Zbiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting-edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com Friday and use the code Friday to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com Friday and use the code Friday at checkout for 15% off. Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. When Breath Becomes Air is a memoir by an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to find hope and beauty in the face of his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a memoir about a doctor becoming a patient, a new father confronting mortality, and a reminder to live while we're alive. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com air. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Congress has passed a law that will ban TikTok. But why? If you are going to take away an app used by 170 million people, I believe that lawmakers and the government who ostensibly work for us, the American people, owe us more information about why that divestiture is being moved forward. Debating the TikTok ban. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. From HIV to COVID to monkeypox, viruses have been on our minds lately. Of course, viruses are no strangers. From the common cold to cold sores to shingles, we've always had to deal with them. 
Sci-fi producer Christy Taylor is here with reflections from one microbiologist about living through multiple viral crises. Hey, Christy. Hey there, Ira. Why do I get the impression we are about to get philosophical today? (laughs) Well, as you know, Ira, we live on a planet of viruses. There are more individual viruses on Earth than there are stars in the universe. An ounce of ocean water contains more than 7 billion viruses. And almost all of them are harmless to us. You know, when I think about it, yeah, some are even helpful, Mm -hmm. like phages, which can kill harmful bacteria. Right, exactly. But as you mentioned, a few touch our lives in really major ways. We've been covering the anxiety and uncertainty around monkeypox, for example. And there's the virus that causes COVID. But there's also the trauma of HIV and the AIDS crisis, which has shaped many, many lives even since the advent of effective treatments. I talked to Dr. Joseph Osmondson. He's a self-described queer scientist who teaches microbiology at New York University. And he has a new book out called Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. It's part COVID quarantine diary, part meditation on his experience as a queer man growing up in a world where HIV has always existed. And he's got a little bit of praise also for the sheer beauty of viruses as well. Beauty? I guess, uh, I guess in the same way a cruise missile is a thing of beauty. And so I'm, I'm not quite sure I can agree here. I know, I know. I see where you're coming from, Ira. But by the end of his book, I too was a convert. However, we did just start by talking about the basics, what a virus is and how it does so much for something so small. In general, we think about life conforming to what biologists call a central dogma. And the main component of the central dogma is that genes, genetic information, is always, 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 capital A, encoded in DNA. Uh, And there are particular mechanisms through which genes get, get activated and turn into their protein products. Viruses don't even follow that basic tenet of life. So there are RNA viruses that encode their genome, their genetic material and RNA. There are single-stranded RNA viruses, double-stranded RNA viruses, single-stranded DNA viruses, double-stranded DNA viruses. And each virus is just trying to copy itself. So it will do whatever evolution has taught it to do to make more copies of itself. So the virus is going to use itself plus you, so itself plus your cell, uh, to copy itself. And we kind of classify viruses in different ways. One is by the genetic material it has, RNA versus DNA. Another is whether the viral infection is acute or persistent. Some viruses like HIV, uh, like herpes virus, once you get infected with it, that virus will live in your cells uh, for the rest of your life. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, right, is an acute virus. Mm -hmm. The virus comes in, copies itself a bunch, and when your immune system clears it, the virus has left your body. Viruses are curious, magical, wonderful, horrifying little things. And each virus solves the problem of replication of copying itself in its own unique way. You know, the the images that we see of viruses, like that famous kind of gray ball for SARS-CoV-2, that is actually what that virus looks like under an electron microscope, plus some additional structural data from higher resolution methods. So when you when you look at those graphics, that 
kind of, that actually is, if you had a, an eye small enough to see, that really is what a virus looks like. Uh, the, the scale bar that you need is the cell that it would infect. And the cell is, you know, a thousand fold or more larger than that. So it's the virus would, would be just a tiny dot compared to the size of your cell. And you alluded to this a moment ago when talking about HIV. Um, I think another famous example is, you know, herpes. People who get cold sores have herpes forever. Why am I not just me, but me plus herpes? Yeah, so the, and they're two really interesting examples because HIV is with you in your T cells because when it infects your cell as part of its life cycle, it literally cuts itself into your DNA. So it, you be, your DNA, your molecule of heredity in those cells that will be passed on to the offspring of all of those cells become a virus-human hybrid. Uh, and so that, that means that you know, the, the virus obviously can pass from you to another person, but it will also pass from you, your cells, your T cells, to all of your future T cells. Uh, herpes is a little bit of a different I example because it actually doesn't integrate into your DNA. Its DNA makes what's called an episome, but that stays, that episome knows how to copy itself and stay with you. So the way I think about herpes infection is your DNA doesn't become a human herpes hybrid, but herpes is always in your cell and it is always probably replicating at some low level. And your immune system is kind of talking to that replication and kind of your immune system is turning it down. And, you know, the herpes is kind of rolling along. And so it's, you know, mostly for a lot of folks, if you're stressed or you have a dip in immunity, then the virus talks a little louder. And on top of being stressed, you have a cold sore. And then you're stressed uh, about that. And then you're stressed about that. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, onward we go. Um, you know, it. I think herpes really reframes for me, you know, and other very common viruses like Epstein-Barr virus, what it means to be a person. Because most people have herpes. Uh, you know, we have to acknowledge that a small number of people who have herpes, it's, it's sort of a debilitating illness. They have outbreaks all the time. And those people deserve better biomedicine and better care. Uh, and at the same time, herpes, it, having herpes is totally normal. <laughs> most people do. Um, and for most people, it's very, it's very manageable. And there's even some research that I talk about in my mm -hmm. book that herpes actually is activating the immune system to fight particular bacterial or parasitic infections. Mm -hmm. So in that way, you can almost think about a herpes infection as a component of your own immunity. Wow, that's really cool. Um, I feel like I should be saying thanks, herpes. <laughs> <laughs> go, it's like, go herpes in this context. And some viruses kill bacteria for us. Oh, so that's what I did my PhD on, right? I was studying um, a bacteriophage. So these are viruses that only infect bacteria. And the, the virus I was studying infected staph bacteria. So these are actually viruses that have been used in humans um, the virus that I studied came from biomedical research in Georgia, the country Georgia, where it was actually used as a therapeutic for people who had staph infections. Amazing. So, you know, it's sort of the enemy of your enemy is your friend type of a situation. <laughs> I feel like there's a handshake meme in there. there is, it's, I, I like the Spider-Man mm, one, mm -hmm. the Spider-Man, the two Spider-Mans pointing at one another. And, you know, the other fun thing about the virus that I studied in my Ph.D., is just how, you know, really digging, I read, I looked at every single, you know, maybe 200 genes in that sucker. I looked at every single one of them and like 80% of them were not related to any other known protein, 
which doesn't happen in living things, right? Living things are related to other living things, whereas viruses evolve in these spaces and these ways that they can be super special little snowflakes. <laughs> well, and you have used some pretty admiring sounding language um, already in this conversation. I think you said wondrous at one point about viruses. Um What's your emotional relationship with these? Um, I don't even know if organism or life form is even the right word, but but tell us about your feelings, Joe. They're definitely not an, oh God, a science question about my feelings. <laughs> this is deeply my brand. Uh, they're definitely not an organism. I call them a life form because they cannot replicate themselves, so they're not to a biologist living. Uh, I use the word awesome to talk about viruses in, in the sort of original sense of that word. As a queer person who was born in 1983, you know, around the six months where HIV was shown to cause what was then called GRID and is now uh, called HIV AIDS, I I've never not understood the deadly impact of a virus and the emotional weight of um, queer bodies being put in black plastic garbage yeah. bags and left on the street because hospitals didn't want to deal with them, uh, people being rejected by their families. I, I cannot take my lived experience away from the horror, the, the true horror, the horror of HIV, AIDS, both in the 80s, 90s, and still now because people are still getting HIV and people are still dying of AIDS. And in this country, mm -hmm. the horror that was 2020, the absolute abject horrific experience that has been watching, you know, people, including two of my very dearest friends, um, get monkeypox and have to isolate for weeks on end. It is remarkable how profound viruses, profoundly viruses have impacted every aspect of our lives at this point. And yet, the vast majority, there are more viruses on Earth than there are stars in the sky. The vast majority of viruses uh, are phage that infect only bacteria. Um, I had to undo a lot of my thinking about viruses that focused only on HIV AIDS as a viral model. And part of that was undoing shame and stigma that I had put on myself that said, if I ever became HIV positive, I would be less desirable. I would love myself less. I would have less sex. Uh, and, and that was shame and stigma I had to undo in myself even. Uh, you know, HIV is a horror. It is a, a particle with uh, nine genes made out of RNA. And we have 40 trillion cells and 22,000 genes and 3.2 billion unique letters of genetic information. And RNA has figured out how to get into our cells, replicate in them, and even kill us if we don't have biomedicine. And so there, there is something awesome in that power that it has um, and, and essential to understand how that works because through understanding that awesome power, we can actually invent interventions, and we have. You're writing here, too, about the meaning of viruses and how that meaning changes. And you know, the invention of the biomedicine, you know, Truvada, uh, which is, you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis, has changed the meaning of HIV also. And I should also acknowledge the antiretroviral therapy as well um, yeah. for people living with HIV. How has the meaning of HIV changed both personally and socially, you know, in the decades since it first emerged? This is like one of the biggest thrusts of my book. It's not to feel nihilistic and helpless in the face of plague 
or a virus is to understand that the virus, our body, and biomedicine make meaning together. And each one of those three things is able to shift meaning. You know, I think it's as essential U equals U, which you mentioned that someone who is HIV positive and uh, undetectable because they're controlling HIV's replication with antiretrovirals, it is impossible for that person to transmit HIV. It does not and cannot happen, which means actually that someone who's HIV positive is the safest sex partner you can have for HIV transmission. And that broke my brain <laughs> open in the best way. That biomedical intervention, that really incredible science that took many years to show that incontrovertibly made me love myself differently because I would I, I could love myself as someone who is HIV negative and HIV positive. And it made me think about sex with people with HIV in a completely different way. So in 2012, before we had a, a pill to prevent HIV, whether or not a condom broke or you wanted to use one, to you know, 2022, 10 years when you have the knowledge that HIV positive people are your safest sex partners in terms of HIV transmission, and I can take a pill to make my risk so close to zero itself, you know, HIV's meaning just, it, it just shifts in profound ways that for me at least have undone some of the trauma of having grown up in the shadow of HIV. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. If you're just joining us, I'm Christy Taylor, and I am talking to microbiologist and author Joseph Osmondson. He's the author of the book Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. Do you think that, you know, that shadow and the, the trauma from those plague years when HIV was not survivable, do you think that's given gay men and other LGBTQ people a different relationship with infectious disease? It certainly has given us the lived experience of doing harm reduction <laughs> around infectious disease and a viral infection uh, because for many years and still today, when you have sex, you are making um, a, a large number of complex decisions uh, around risk for HIV and other infectious diseases that are generally uh, front of mind for us. And so, you know, when you talk about COVID risk reduction or uh, biomedical acceptance, mm -hmm. right? Am I going to get the vaccine for SARS-CoV-2? Well, gay people got that vaccine at higher rates than almost any other group because we're like, I would quite like to go back to being social without as much worry about getting an infection that could kill me. And oh, oh hey, there's a biomedical intervention. That's great. And, you know, I think the, the focus really needs to be on equity and how we imagine the gay community as one thing mm -hmm. <laughs> and how our, the gay community in actuality or the queer community or our sexual network is an entirely other thing. And that people in rural areas, people of color, black and brown people and indigenous people in particular are often left out of our imagination. And that also leaves them outside of access to care that has become routine for many upper middle class gay men in New York City. And you're talking about the expense of these these drugs. You know, it's not just the expense because uh, there are interventions to make PrEP affordable for most people. It's also, if you talk about the rural South, uh, homophobia of healthcare providers. Some people literally live 60 plus miles from their nearest uh, clinic. Do they have 
health insurance? Has information about PrEP even gotten out to them? You know, my I have a gay doctor in Chelsea, and so he's just like, what's your PrEP deal? And I'm like, this is my PrEP deal. And then we sort it out. It's very easy. That is not the case for everybody, right? So it's, it is the cost, yes, but it is a million things besides, in addition to the cost, that have direct and dramatic impact on accessibility. You know, all of these lessons of HIV about, you know, who is still seroconverting, who's still getting HIV today, and it's largely black and brown people, a lot of folks in the rural South, people outside of our imagination of uh, gay sexual networks, and people outside of our imagination of the queer community. Biomedicine is never enough. Biomedicine is magical. HIV meds save lives. They pulled people back from the brink of death in 1996. And yet, you know, uh, I have a, a friend who I know whose parents died of HIV both, including one in and around 1996 because the, they weren't able to access those pills soon enough, right? There are people even now who get their HIV positive diagnosis when they are presenting with AIDS because they've been living with HIV without knowing it for years. Um, so biomedicine is magical, but biomedicine without access, global access is never ever enough. Christy, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back more from your conversation with NYU microbiologist, Joseph Osmondson, about how viruses are shaping our lives. Science Friday is supported by Zbiotics. The team of PhD scientists at Zbiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre-alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting-edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com Friday and use the code Friday to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com slash Friday, and use the code Friday at checkout for 15% off. Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. When Breath Becomes Air is a memoir by an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to find hope and beauty in the face of his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a memoir about a doctor becoming a patient, a new father confronting mortality, and a reminder to live while we're alive. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com air. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We've been listening to producer Christy Taylor's interview with microbiologist Joe Osmondson about growing up in the post-HIV world, how COVID-19 changed us, and how viruses may shape our lives in the future. His new book is Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. Here's more from that conversation. I want to go back to your book for a moment, to the COVID-19 pandemic, where you write about the initial months of quarantine in 2020. Uh, you created a pod so you could see a couple of friends safely still. What felt important about sharing this experience in a book-length meditation on viruses? You know, what I learned from reading uh, folks who had written about the experience of HIV in the 80s and 90s it can be very dangerous to live through a trauma and not look at it closely. I lived in New York, which was profoundly impacted by fatalities. I mean, 24 hours a day, you could hear sirens in the distance 
carrying the sickest New Yorkers to the hospital where they may or may not get the care that they need. That lived experience um, of, how, of how we tried to care for one another in the face of that and how horrible it was and how magic other people were mm -hmm. was essential to like really, really sit with profoundly to say, this is something that we need to emotionally process. Now, do I love looking back on that given that COVID is still killing people and now monkeypox is here? It, it's an ongoing profound emotional experience, but I do think it's helpful to allow ourselves to feel even as we're still in it and allow ourselves to remember that profound experience and learn from it. Try to take how we cared for each other in spring and summer of 2022, continue that, to do that hard work of putting care, community, and harm reduction at the forefront of our thoughts and minds, even years later. Yeah. And you write about, you know, you write about this vision of care. You also write about some of the activism you were involved in with COVID and in, in trying to get New York City to shut down earlier than it did. And there were so many different kinds of response, even a, like across the country, around the world, even within New York City. But why did people behave in different ways in response to this very sudden, terrifying time? Yeah, I mean, people deal with trauma differently. And there were systemic and governmental failures in, in, in messaging, in providing people the tools that they needed to isolate, uh, to make sure that people had money in their pocket to pay their rents if their work was interrupted. I mean, the, the essay about my pod and the essay about um, activism, I view those both the community care and the activism we were doing as, as, as a way to love, because one is interpersonal care and then activism at its best is care extended into politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the RNA sequencing we tried to do, like Seattle did, that actually successfully got Seattle shut down very early in March, we failed. Yeah. We didn't get the samples we needed to get the information to force politicians to, to do the right thing based on science. Um, and tens of thousands of people died who didn't need to die. As of last week, the CDC has relaxed the guidelines requiring quarantine Girl. after exposure to COVID-19. <sighs> How does this relate to the vision of care that you tried to express in virology? Girl, 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 girl. <laughs> Oh, Lord. I mean, it's so funny because the CDC is um, arguing that this is, quote unquote, meeting people where they're at, which is a, an important notion in public health. You don't show up at someone's home and yell at them. You provide lots of options to mitigate risk that it accepts that not everyone is able to, to do the very best perfect thing. We've been having this fight with monkeypox as well. Isolation for monkeypox is four to five weeks. And the guidance is to isolate. But we also acknowledge that not everyone cannot go grocery shopping for four or five weeks, right? What are people going to do? And so, you know, we provide guidance that if you do have to leave the home, wear a mask, cover all your lesions. Meeting people where they're at is not get on an airplane, don't wear a mask. You know, we don't have any guidance that says to isolate after you test positive. That's not care. Uh, and, and this is so deeply tied to capitalism, to the fact that the government views itself as getting out of the way of people making people work when they're sick like they used to before COVID. Policies like universal health care and universal sick leave are the solutions to this problem. You know, if you look at the UK's monkeypox data, 
they have way fewer cases per capita than the U.S., and the cases are now falling. They actually had fewer vaccines per capita, but had enough of a public health infrastructure that they could test and trace yeah. all the cases uh, and keep the number down with non-pharmaceutical interventions largely. That's what's so frustrating. It's not rocket science, yeah. people. you know. But the notion of like ripping off the Band-Aid and saying, go do whatever you want, is it, just really insulting to all of us who have been trying to both lead with care in our individual lives and then also advocate for care being center of uh, public policy. Let's talk about monkeypox. Even as public health experts are stressing that the virus is not solely a sexually transmitted infection, and even as people are being very wary and careful about stigma against LGBTQ people who are the majority of the patients so far, even so, we're seeing high-profile newspaper and magazine editorials urging queer men and others in their sexual networks to have less sex. As someone talking about harm reduction this whole this whole interview, what is your reaction? Man, the the problem is not communicating to people that we need to, for a time, probably change our sexual behaviors. The thing is, this came from the community of people who have the most sex. Everyone knew everyone who was sick. Everyone had a friend who was ill and saw how horrible it was and didn't want to get sick. This community, the very community of people that I'm in, has been making guidance that includes telling people that altering their sexual behaviors will lower their risk for infection, um, but also does not stigmatize um, group sex or going to a sauna or a bathhouse mm -hmm. or having multiple partners on Grinder and says, you know, we need to wait until we get the biomedicine to protect us. And then we need to study how well that biomedicine protects us, largely vaccine. It is infuriating that the vaccine situation has been so horrific. So many people I know wanted to get vaccines, couldn't get vaccines, and then got sick. And that is a crime. So, you know, it's coming from this 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 fine line, this the threaded needle, this knife blade edge, right, that says community should be leading. We need to give people information, but we also need to not stigmatize this type of sex. And when you a, a piece gets published in The Atlantic that opens with a 1927 bathhouse scene talking about the men being ghosts and not being able to look at each other and cites Larry Kramer and everyone else who agreed that, you know, sort of uh, promiscuous sex gets in the way of intimacy. Mm -hmm. It is just doing harm to the community that's already suffering. It is implying that people got sick out of a lack of self-control as opposed to out of a lack of tests, treatment, and vaccines. Uh, and the community is really insulted. It feels patronizing and people are angry. Sure. If viruses are inherent to the world we live in, as we sort of started out this conversation acknowledging, and we're going to remain in conversation with them for the entirety of our existence as a species, what is your vision for how we can do better to reduce the death and pain of that conversation in the future? Biomedicine is an incredible human in invention. And we need uh, every nation, everyone on Earth should have their people able to do research science uh, on the priorities of the folks who live there. You know, so it should not be the U.S. shipping our monkeypox technology to Nigeria, although that is an immediate mm -hmm. goal. But, you know, 
why does Nigeria and why does, does the Congo not have the biomedical infrastructure themselves? Well, it's because of colonial extraction of the wealth of those nations and neo-colonial uh, interactions between their governments and ours continuing that wealth extraction. Um, so, you know, I think viruses point us to the harms that we do to one mm -hmm. another and we will never eradicate the risk of a viral infection, a new viral infection, an old viral infection. But if we lead with care, and if we look to the places where viruses have shown us that we've done harm to one another and try to repair that harm through that act of reparation, we will be protecting ourselves and one another from all viral threats. Mm -hmm. Joe, thank you so much for the time today. Oh, this was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Joseph Osmondson teaches microbiology at New York University in New York City. His book is Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. And we've got an excerpt if you want to take a look up on our website. That's at sciencefriday.com slash virology. That's sciencefriday.com slash virology. I'm Christy Taylor. Thank you, Christy. Our coverage of monkeypox is continuing as this global health emergency unfolds. We have a Q&A from past experts up on our website for you right now, sciencefriday.com slash monkeypox. Again, sciencefriday.com slash monkeypox. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KERU for WWNO, St. Louis Public Radio, Iowa News. Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. Florida is home to one of our favorite charismatic creatures, manatees. We've spoken in the past about how populations of these mammals have gone way down over the years, and a lot of that has to do with the health of Florida waterways. And now there's finally some good news. Off the coast of Tampa, the water, it seems, is in great shape and its plant life is flourishing. This could be a great sign for manatees. Joining me now is a man who loves diving into a good story, Steve Newborn, reporter for WUSF in Tampa, Florida. Welcome to Science Friday. Great to be here, Ira. Great to have you. Okay, so tell me about this area that you went to for this story. Right. This is just off the uh, the coast of Tampa Bay to the north. It's uh, it's called the Nature Coast, which probably gives you an indication of why it's so healthy. It's uh, the second largest uh, seagrass beds in the Gulf of Mexico, just second to uh, Florida Bay, which is at the tip of the Everglades in southern Florida. And the reason it's so healthy is because it's relatively undeveloped. It's called the Nature Coast for a reason. It has several aquatic preserves. Uh, there, there's very little development along the water because it's very marshy. The famed beaches that we have in the Tampa Bay area to the south of here. So not a lot of people live on here. And it's home to uh, a lot of rivers that are pretty pristine that flow into the Gulf. They have names like the Chasawitska, the Wakasasa, and the Wikiwachi, which some of your listeners may have heard about the mermaids there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's very clean, pristine, and... Um, State officials and federal officials are trying to keep it that way. And so that's why the seagrass is growing so well there. That's right. Yeah, it's the water's clean. Yeah. The, the problem we've had in the Indian River Lagoon over on the Atlantic coast is that it's basically a kind of a closed ecosystem. It's a long lagoon that only has a few cuts through the barrier islands to 
let the Atlantic Ocean flush. And that's why there's been so many nutrients that have been collecting there and in basically fueling algae blooms that kill the seagrass that the manatees need to survive. Yeah, that's the key here, the connection between the seagrass and, and the manatees is that there's a lot of seagrass they love to eat. Right. This area has a lot of flushing in the Gulf. I went out with a water quality scientist with the Southwest Florida Water Management District by the name of Chris Anastasio. Here's what he had to say about this. If anyone's been to Crystal River, Kings Bay, you know in the wintertime, that's the place to go to see manatees. Those manatees feed on these grasses, so the health of these grasses ensure that those manatees have plenty of food to eat. What were you doing out on the boat there with him? They do a uh, survey of the seagrasses every once in a while just to kind of check and see how they're doing. And, you know, the beauty of this was we weren't really expecting it, but there's more seagrass now than there was a few years ago, which is quite surprising. Uh, it's not the way in, in much of Florida, you know, with all the all the septic tanks and, uh, you know, the lawn fertilizers that people put in right. the lawn that kind of just fuel these these algae blooms. Well, this area, I mean, 80% of the sandy bottom was covered with seagrass. I mean, he went down there, he was picking up uh, drift algae and handing it to me and let me have a little taste. It was quite delicious, actually. I never thought I could eat this stuff. But uh, it was really clear water, so the uh, the seagrasses have plenty of sunlight. Manatees love it. Hmm. Chow down. Yeah, I, I guess... I guess the rest of Florida could take lessons from the nature coast to remedy their seagrass problem. Oh, if it was only that easy. Uh, the problem is we have so many people moving into the state, you know, 800 to 1,000 people a day, according to some estimates. And all those people like to live in the coast. They like to have boats, which are another threat to manatees. And they like to do a lot of flushing, which goes into septic tanks and all this development kind of fuels the amount of nutrients going in the water. So... This is, it's, it's nice to see that not happening in at least one part of Florida. Is there anything you can do to remedy this issue? Well, the, uh, the state is mandating that more places hook up to water treatment systems rather than into septic tanks. And the, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently agreed to a settlement with several environmental groups to uh, publish a proposed manatee critical habitat revision in their plans by September of 2024. Uh, this rule would bring enhanced federal scrutiny to projects that might affect the manatees. And also the state of Florida has agreed to spend $8.5 million on a variety of projects such as planting new seagrass and improving water quality, which is basically um, building, helping to build more water treatment plants to get rid of some of those septic tanks. Well, that's great news, and it's great to see that you have uh, found a great spot where the seagrass is growing and the manatees are flourishing. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful spot. Um, if anybody wants to get out there, it's uh, scalloping season just ended, but we do have a lot of uh, sponge diving. You know, Tarpon Springs is the big sponge diving place just south of there, and uh, a lot of good recreational fishing in this area. It's quite beautiful. Well, the Chamber of Commerce welcomes you, and thanks you, Steve. Steve Newborn, reporter for WUSF in Tampa. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Ira. One last thing before we go. If you're anything like me, you may have a soft spot for fish tanks. I mean, home aquariums. Yeah, for a long time, I had a saltwater reef tank in my living room. It was home to a few clownfish anemones and corals. And you know, there was something really therapeutic about building and caring for my little underwater community. There's a word for the craft of putting together an underwater habitat. Aquascaping. 
Aquascaping is the subject of our newest Science Friday video out now. For most people that have never seen an aquascape, when they first see one, they're kind of blown away. It's this exciting new world that they didn't know was possible. There's a lot of invisible science that's happening in what looks like clear water. You have to really understand how the plants work and how the plants grow, but aquascaping really is an art form. Take a look at the video on our website, sciencefriday.com tank. And since aquascaping is a hobby, we've got some great resources for how you can get into this. Again, that's sciencefriday.com tank. And that's about it for this hour. Here's Kathleen Davis with some of the folks who helped make this show happen. Thanks, Ira. Nahima Ahmed is our manager of Impact Strategy. Felissa Mayers is our office manager. Annie Nero is our individual giving manager. Charles Berquist is our radio director. And I'm Kathleen Davis, radio producer. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Kathleen. B.J. Liedemann composed our theme music. If you missed any part of the program or you would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.